Hi, I'm Steve Duke, and this is the Two Roads Podcast. Today on the show, we have Rebecca Thomas. Now, Rebecca lives a really cool life. It's pretty unique. It's pretty interesting. And I think a lot of people will be quite envious of the life that she's built for herself. So several years ago, she sat down with her husband when they were living in Sydney and basically conjured up this dream life for themselves. And it evolved around two things. The first one was sunshine. And the second one was about spending time with the people that they liked most in the world. And then over the next couple of years, they kind of built and worked on this dream and turned it into a reality. So now they spend half their year in Europe where they're renovating a 16th century barn in France and then the other half of the year in Australia. So they are always skipping winter, but also always spending time with the people that they love and want to spend time with in the world. On this episode, you're going to hear about why you should take a sabbatical. Rebecca's taken three across her career, but more importantly, how to take a sabbatical and how to get the most out of it. How Rebecca designed this dream life for herself and her husband and then made it into reality. Rebecca's advice for finding your purpose. The rituals Rebecca has implemented in her own life to make sure that she stays on track with her goals, but then also allows her to find happiness. We talk about things like joy days and medicine walks, which are things I'd never heard about before, but I'm definitely going to take and try out in my own life. And finally, we talk about two things that hold people back from building a life they love and probably more importantly, how you can get past them. As always, if you want more content like this on helping to build a life that you love, find work that you find meaning and purpose in, or just hear other stories of cool people who've done interesting things with their lives. You can go and find me on socials, Instagram, it's the Two Roads Pod, and then on LinkedIn, just my personal profile, Steve Duke. But for now, I hope you enjoy my chat with Rebecca Thomas. Let's get into it. Making it happen, shit. Shout out to my man, to ADM. Shout out to all the motherfuckers that don't give a fuck about us. Now we here, all right? why do you think people should take a sabbatical it's all around if approached correctly a moment in time where you can really pause and almost jump into sacred time to be able to design your own best life Um, Certainly for me, that's what it helped me do. I think it was a total game changer with regards to how I approached life and almost what, what is possible, taking that time to really slow down and explore what is possible. Mm, So what's the difference between that and just like taking a holiday? I think two things stand out for me. One is intention and really knowing why you want to take the sabbatical and having an an intention for that period of time um, rather than just, I don't know, going, you know, off with mates to a um, holiday in the sun. And then the second thing is that difference and differentiator between sacred time and business as usual, as it were. So, as well, I think length comes into that. But um, if we think about the Greeks, they had two words for time. They had the um, chronos, which is the, you know, your hours, your minutes, what can be measured. That for me is your BAU time, you know, time that we have always and we're constantly kind of fighting against that. I think the difference between a holiday and a sabbatical is sabbatical really plays into 
that Karios time, which the Greeks classed as um, the time that really are periods of time that almost can't be measured. Um, they're, you know, you measure them on the usefulness or the consequential impact. And that for me is the sacred time. I've got a friend who's got a company called Wanda, which is an incredible company around finding Wanda in the world. And she talks about sacred time. And for me, I think that's the difference between a holiday and a, a sabbatical. Right. So it's about kind of creating this like space um, for yourself and having the time and having the intention as well, I think is a really important part that you mentioned where you can say, hey, this isn't just, you know, me going to sit by the pool and, and relax, but I've actually, I'm going here with a purpose. I have a purpose for this, for this mission, for this like time that I'm going to take out and I'm going to try and figure something out, out about it. Um, so you've taken, you've taken three sabbaticals, um, across your life. Is that right? I have. And now I feel as though I am constantly on what's somewhat a sabbatical. (laughs) Really? Um, So, so what, what was your, what was your first sabbatical? And, and did you, did you kind of, um, go on it with intention of trying to figure something out about your career or about kind of what you wanted to do with your life at that point? No, I think the first sabbatical, if I think about the three sabbaticals that I've taken, the first one, almost I don't even know if I knew at the time that it was a sabbatical, which is also when I look back why it was, to me, if I'm measuring the success of sabbaticals, the worst one. Um, My husband and I were moving to Australia from the UK and we took a period of time out in between that. There was no intention. Um, and yeah, it just was almost travel. Um, the second one for me was the one where I really feel like I nailed it. And that was where I was at a crossroads in my career. And I was almost in this place of duality between what I wanted to do next, what I wanted life to look like. I was sort of between the UK and Australia um, and that really was intentional. So that was very much around taking time out to look at what the next chapter looked like, where that next chapter was and how we could make that work. And then my final um, sabbatical was a lot shorter. So that, that middle one was about six months um the the third one was a lot shorter and actually was a solo sabbatical um and was probably two years before we made the jump into our new life so three years post our my husband and I sabbatical together and really for me that one was just cementing that yes we were on the right path I was on the right path you know I the dream that we had created together was what I wanted. Um, and that was, yeah, a, a solo sabbatical for a month in between contracting and a permanent gig. Yeah, right. And so what is the what was that dream that you both created together? So the dream was um, built on two non-negotiables. One was sunshine and the weather. So we 
absolutely love summer, love living in summer and hate winter. We both hate the cold. And it was like, is there a way we can create a life that is chasing the sun, essentially? And then the second piece was built on our favorite people. So we are lucky to have so many amazing people in our life. As I mentioned, we're originally from the UK uh, and then have spent 13 years in Australia. And we've got amazing people in both and we weren't, we didn't want to, you know, give up both or, or one or the other, you know. So it was about creating this life where we could have our cake and eat it, essentially. So the life that we dreamed up was to throw the normal blueprint of, you know, corporate until you retire or staying in one place until you retire and actually being able to spend the Northern Hemisphere summer uh, in Europe and and be able to share that with our favourite people in this side of the world and then spend the Southern Hemisphere in Oz and Asia or, you know, sort of in, in the sun and spend time with our favourite people in that side of the world. But I, I think this is so incredible. I, I've got tons of questions to ask you because um, I'm in a, I would say I'm in a somewhat similar situation that you might have been in maybe a few years ago where I've been living in Australia for a few years. I love it. I love the sun. I've got a lot of people here that I love spending time with and I care about. But of course, like my family and my kind of longest friends are all back home. And I always feel this like split between the two of them. There's, I always struggle to like, there's no way to, to get them all in the one place, right? You just can't do it. Um, and so I'm very interested to figure out like what this experience has been like for you um, for kind of my own situation. Um, but yeah, give me a bit more details then about what that life looks like for you now. Like what do you, you do for work? What your husband, what's your um, husband do for work? How do you kind of manage the living situation? Like, do you have a place in, you know, two different countries? Like how does it all work? Like I'm very, I'm very interested. Okay. So probably, um, where to start is to take you back to the UK. So in the UK, we had a, a property which we never gave up when we moved to Australia. So we're lucky enough that we still have a property in the UK. Uh, that gives us a source of income, you know, consistently through the year. Um, but we don't spend a huge amount of time in the UK. So from a from a base perspective, we don't actually have a base in, in the UK. So we go back and spend it with my parents when we're back there. Um, and then floating really between our favorite people, uh, France, we do. So we bought a barn, a derelict barn, 16th century barn, uh, in 2008 on a bit of a whim, um, the year we got married and the, the sort of plan was that we would spend, you know, busman's holiday because my husband was in construction and, and utilities, coming out here in the summer, you know, doing a bit of work and then traveling back and whatever. So that was bought, uh, as I say, in 2008. I then got the opportunity in 2011 to go over to the, uh, go to Australia and be sponsored by my company. And so this almost got totally shut up. So we just literally kind of closed the doors and, and, and sort of parked this, um, Went to Oz, stupidly, and it's probably why one big regret didn't buy in Oz. We so should have done. Um, 
but in Oz, we don't have a base, so we we would rent when we go back to Oz. So for that period of time that we're in Australia, we you know rent either a room or um, an apartment in Australia. Um, with regards to how that looks, as I say, it's the summer months in in France, um, and now that is very much on renovating this barn. As you can see behind me, it is. Uh, <laughs> still somewhat derelict in areas if you can imagine it in thirds when we bought it one third was totally dilapidated like walls caving in two thirds was just a barn Um, the roof was totally caved in it needed a whole new roof and everything like that so it's a huge project I think a project we I probably totally underestimated Um, but my husband when we are in France he this is his job essentially it well it's both of our jobs we're we're renovating when we're in France um I have been in recruitment for 18 19 years um and so when we dreamed up this life I looked at going out and consulting um on my own and doing some bits with recruitment on my own so I um work some of the time in in Australia with um, a strategy recruitment company, as you know, uh, and I also do some leadership coaching and mentoring with recruitment leaders. When we were on our sabbatical together, um, I took a, a lot of time to really look at what I wanted to do. I had never uh, moved role or company with intention. Right. I had always fallen into, you know, I fell into a graduate scheme after university. I fell into recruitment. Um, The company I worked with was so amazing for throwing opportunities at you before you were ready, you know, like identifying top talent and, and throwing you opportunities. So you're never bored. But also what that means is you never actually move with intention. You're thrown the opportunities and and you sort of grab them. Uh, when I you know, there was intention in leaving that company, but because of my network, I then fell into a project and consulting and then that, you know, turned into a permanent role. So I felt as though I had never actually chosen what I wanted to do. So through my through our sabbatical, um, I really looked at, okay, what was what were my passions? I don't know if you've heard of the Japanese concept of ikigai. So I looked at you know, kind of, you know, I, I went down that rabbit hole. Um, I love travel, have always loved travel. I love the coaching piece. So I trained as a coach um, and have basically married my passions, which is that sort of travel, that taking a sabbatical um, and the coaching piece. And I'm now offering sabbatical and career break coaching as well. So I kind of have those three parts of work um, and my husband then sometimes when we're back in Australia will go back and um, you know work for some of the boys in construction that he used yeah. to work with. So that's basically in a nutshell life. That's quite cool. It's a it's a very fascinating setup that you have and um, I'm interested to know when you sat down a number of years ago and you kind of dreamt up this life 
And it probably felt amazing at the time to think of this future where you're splitting your time across two different countries or two different regions, continents, getting to spend um, all your time in the sun, skipping winter, spending your time with all of your favorite people in the world. But I think sometimes we think up of these dreams and then when it, the dream itself is probably more enjoyable than the actual reality of it occurring, or maybe we just don't, we forget how to enjoy it. But now that you're kind of down that path and you've actually created this life for yourself and you know, brought this dream to life, is it all that you hoped for? Yeah, and more, I would say. Um, I think I think the hardest part is the house, is is the work on the house. I have um, been been lucky in the fact that I have worked with amazing people all the way through my career and amazing leaders, um, and they have taught me you know, so much and so well and have been so patient with me. My husband is now almost the boss. <laughs> He's not as patient. <laughs> so the relationship and actually the working on the house has been the biggest challenge. Um, I think I underestimated how compartmentalised life was. You know, I went to work, he went to work, didn't see each other. And so then you come back together and, you know, we spend 24-7 together now. Um, so we've really had to look at strategies around, you know, how to um, how to still have an amazing relationship when we're not on site. Yeah, yeah, I, I can imagine that's um, tricky. I've interviewed a couple of people here who like work with their other halves and they always say it's great, but, you know, you better be prepared <laughs> to to do it. And there's some things that they can do to I had Alicia, a woman called Alicia Conlon heard on one of my early episodes and she works with her partner they actually also now kind of living a remote lifestyle kind of traveling around asia um, and she was just like yep it works super well but like we've implemented these kind of processes and check-ins with ourselves to make sure that you know we keep work and relation we have those boundaries or we have kind of ways that we can like still work together without killing each other and um, which seems important to me um, yeah it's compartmentalizing it you know, it's it's basically this is work and our kind of ritual is a shower, you know. So once once you're in your scruffs, you go and have a shower, you're then in normal clothes and that's when your husband and wife again. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. I, I think that's very good. I like that. Um, I mean, like people might be listening to this, right, and say, um, geez, this sounds like an amazing life, right, that you can split your time across two different continents. Um, but they might be worried about whether they could actually do it or not. And I'm talking mainly like from a financial perspective. Do you find that this is like significantly more expensive than like, is it more expensive than if you were to be based kind of in one place permanently? Is it comparable? Is it less, you know, how would it compare to if you were just say full-time living in either the UK or, or in Australia? Interesting. I, I can't answer you on whether it's more or less. I don't know. I haven't, I mean, comparably from a, I suppose, disposable income perspective. Um, we, it, it costs, our lifestyle definitely costs less as is than as it was in Sydney, without a doubt. Um, because if you think of Sydney rent, uh, we're lucky enough that we bought this um, barn 
as I say, years ago and, and don't have a mortgage or anything on it. Um, but also, you know, with that comes the cost of living in a building site. So yes, it will be amazing once it's done, but we will have had four years where, you know, I still don't have hot water on tap, right? <laughs> Okay. Um, yeah, right. We so are those, still those shower- showers at the end of the day to uh, are outside you know. <laughs> in the shed at the moment. <laughs> um, so this is not, you know, if you think you're living the dream on a day to day perspective in France, we are from the fact of fundamentals of, you know, being with the people that we love and our favorite people, it being summertime, you know, all of that. But actually, if I think life was so easy in Sydney, you know, we had a beautiful apartment with everything on our doorstep, so much choice, um, sparkling harbour in front of us, like amazing. So this costs, our, our way of life now definitely costs less, um, but we're earning less as well, right? So it's it's relative. Um, when we're in France, or, or if I take you back to how we made it work, um, from that from coming back from our sabbatical, we sat with a few beers overlooking Sydney Harbour and we were like, right, where, how do we reverse engineer this? In recruitment, we're all about reverse engineering. So it was like, right, okay, how do we reverse engineer? What what do we need? How long is it going to take? Um, and we re-engineered re, um, or reverse engineered the, the whole plan. And... My husband was the one that sort of worked out money-wise what we would need to complete and build the project in France so that we had no debt because that we didn't want debt. And so we worked out the plan would be a five-year plan. You know, we worked out savings goals. We worked out that I would, you know, work on creating a network and looking at, you know, training as a coach, etc. Um so we're in a privileged position where we planned for that and it now does work and we're lucky enough that it does work. A lot of people who might be listening to this podcast are thinking about, you know, how do they find a purpose or a sense of like meaning either in their jobs or like in their broader lives, right? And I think especially as people go through their 20s and 30s, this is a big question. People come out of university or come out of school they get into a job they don't think too much about what they're doing perhaps maybe they do but you know in a couple of years time they're like hey not loving this thing like maybe there's something more to it I wonder if what's out there and kind of have that kind of sense of like oh, I'm yearning for something a little bit bigger than myself something I can find purpose in or a meaning I was reading your blog post um yesterday where you said that after three sabbaticals you finally did find your purpose what is your purpose my infinite purpose, which comes from Simon Sinek, um, where he talks about an infinite purpose, which you can never achieve, right? Which is, it really resonates with me because I'm that sort of person that I almost, I need something that I'm constantly striving for, is to create a kinder and more equitable world. And that, for me, comes down to, really aligns with my values. What that means to me, though, and interestingly, it's taken probably seven years of really kind of digging and reiterating and looking at, at what my purpose is. But what that means more on a day-to-day basis, what gets me up in the morning is 
actually my nieces and godkids where I really want to be able to help them build a toolkit that will see them thrive in life um, and almost see them thrive and become successful in their own unique way. Because I think society tells us so much of what we should be doing or, you know, what, I don't know, has happened before and what you, this is what you need to be doing or these are the only options. And I, I want to throw that all out. So my, my purpose is to build a kind of more equitable life. But in the actual day to day, that's really being able to share the wonder and the magnificence of being able to really create your own best life design with my nieces and godchildren. Mm. And how did you get to this point where you kind of have clarity around what your purpose is? Because, you know, to bring it back to people who might be listening, they might be kind of at the very start of this journey and saying like, well, I don't know what it is. What's even worse is like, how the hell am I going to figure it out? Like, what do, what do I need to do? Do I need to go and, you know, live with the monks for a few weeks? Was there anything that you, what was that journey like for you to the point where you kind of have clarity on what your purpose is? It was long. <laughs> um, it was a lot of different, I suppose, consuming of um things around how to find your purpose so podcasts books um i went to an amazing seminar a, a a real memorable moment for me was going to a seminar um put on by morgan mckinley in sydney actually with a lady who is called oh jill I can't remember her surname, but she was the ex-APAC strategy director for Coke. And she has written a book on best life design, Jill McLaren. And she really, for me, put it down so well. Like I'm quite black and white. I quite like a formula or a, you know, like, yes, I can do the journaling and yes, I can. Yeah, but I really like that, you know, black and white sort of process. And she being a strategist, very much put this 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 process down. So um, I bought her book and worked through that. Um, I stumbled across Ikigai on a podcast and so then went down that rabbit hole. So really it's just been around journaling, um, dreaming, taking time and, and, you know, away from your, your busy schedule and, and really – doing that in a work I think it's um from my own experience where I would say I'm kind of midway through this journey and having talked to other people about what their experiences have been like around coming to a point where they found the purpose I think that there's no prescription like there's nothing there's no single process that's going to work for anybody but I think what you do need is the intention so you need to say this is something that I want to figure out I'm not just going to let myself drift I'd like to figure out what this is for me and then to kind of pull on that thread and keep pulling and it might lead you down to reading a book or, you know, talking to different people or listening to a podcast, doing some exercises, going on a trip, trying something out, prototyping something in your own life. 
and it's just this like, kind of constant process. But unfortunately, there's I don't think there's any one thing somebody can say is like, okay, we'll just sit down, do steps one, two, and three, and at the end of it, don't worry, you'll uh, you'll know your purpose in life. It just tends not to work like that, I guess. Which is which is both frustrating. It's kind of frustrating. And you know, if there was, it would be easy. Everybody would know it, right? And everybody would know it within a finite amount of time. <laughs> but it's it's reiterating and and you know, enjoying the journey as well. I think I've loved, loved the journey. I And I love learning constantly and that self-development. I don't know whether it ever stops. Um, you know, Simon Sinek says your why never changes. I don't know. Like I, I don't know whether that's for sure. Like I've worked with clients where they absolutely knew their why and knew their purpose. And somewhere along the line, it's got lost. And, you know, when we come to a point where actually there's that light bulb moment and they find it again, sometimes it is slightly different. You know, they're at a different stage in life. They Things mean different things to them at that point. They might have had children now where they didn't before, might be in a different country. Like, yeah. I think it's a really good point um, on that kind of point of infinite purpose and how it changes. I listened to a podcast recently with Dan Carter, the rugby player, who um, is a big idol of mine. And he was talking about when he played rugby, he had this bigger purpose, which is, well, actually, and how it changed, right? So he talked at the start of it, his purpose when he was kind of growing up and kind of a teenager and playing rugby was all about becoming an all black. And then he said that when he got his very first cap as a like 20 year old or something for the all blacks, he was like, oh shit, I've just completed it. And he was kind of like, if I don't come up with something else, what's next, right? So then he had to go through this process of like redefining his purpose and his why. And then that was when he wanted to be a great all black. And then that served him for kind of the next, you know, decade or decade and a half. But then he's talking recently about the fact that once he retired, of course, like he can't play anymore, right? So if he leaves his purpose as being kind of a great all black, and that's something he can't actually do anymore. So he needed to redefine that again and find, go through that process of like redefining his why and finding something that he can strive towards and not just say, okay, well, you know, I'm done. I've parked it. I've achieved it. I think that's really important. I, I definitely think it can change. Um, but, you know, because of like circumstances changing, maybe you can't do your job anymore, but also like, you know, you, you, get different perspectives on life as you grow up and have you have different experiences or if you have kids you know or if somebody you love passes away like that's that's going to change how you think about life so i don't see why it wouldn't change your why as well yeah yeah totally i want to come back to this idea that you were talking about of uh, of taking a sabbatical so um what are you, if somebody is kind of thinking about taking a sabbatical or if they're in a job right now and they're like do you know what i'd love to take some time to go and figure out a few things about myself, figure out my purpose, whatever else it is. You talked a little bit about having kind of an intention and creating that kind of sacred time and sacred space for yourself. Is there anything else that you would kind of advise people who are thinking about taking a sabbatical in order to get the most out of it? Yeah, we've talked about finding your why. I That is the first place that I would advise anybody to start. Why do you want to take this period of time off? And really exploring the why. Um, That then almost leads you onto what that period of time looks like, where you'll spend it, when you might take it, with whom you might take it, and and really what you want to get out out of it. 
Um, I've got an example of a client that I worked with who, you know, they'd landed on the fact that they were going to take a sabbatical. Great. Um, This is where they were going to go. This is what they were going to do. And when we actually explored why they wanted to take a sabbatical and how they wanted to feel during and also post, like what they wanted future them to look like after this period of sacred time, what they chose to do on their sabbatical totally changed (laughs) because actually initially it was like, oh, well, you know, I need to do a personal challenge and I'm I'm going to climb a mountain and da, 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 da. anyway, they were going to climb Kilimanjaro because everybody does that. And, you know, that's something that they should do. But actually, when we explored what they need out of their sabbatical and why they were taking it, that that totally didn't align. So it changed their whole way of looking at um, what to do and also with who I think there's a Again, it's really ripping out all of those pre-conditioned ideas of what we should be doing. Um, Another piece that actually I wrote about on LinkedIn the other day was around um, where and having that certainly as an expat, I think, that guilt attached to, you know, when when you go back to your home country, staying with family or staying with friends and actually if it's a sabbatical and you know what you need to get out of it and why you're taking it and that environment doesn't actually lend itself to the outcome then you know don't don't spend time living with mum and dad or you know living with a brother who actually you know is not going to create the environment that you need find a safe space to I don't know rent or um have an airbnb or so it's i think it's around those i i look at the six w's which is why where when who with uh what and then also who do you want future you to look like it's a fantastic framework to kind of help you think through that and to kind of like avoid some of just like the preconditioned ideas of like you know oh i'm in my 20s i should go to asia it's like well yeah should you (laughs) <laughs> says who? Do? yeah yeah well how do you like you obviously work with people that kind of coach them through this how do you help people to let go of these preconditioned ideas because it's very strong and the power of them is 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 very is very powerful right and and if somebody asks us what we want to do we very often just think of these preconditioned thoughts or we think of what other people have done have done and i read this really interesting book called um i think it's called wanting about like mimetic desire and how the fact that like as humans like we're just naturally preconditioned to want what the people around us want right and so it's you're actually fighting quite a strong um natural tendency to fall into these kind of preconditioned ideas how do you help people let go of those and find what it is that is true to them that they really want? As a coach, it's just about asking the right questions, to be honest, and and having a space, say, a safe space for the individual to start to explore their own desires and motivators and, yeah, asking the right questions, really. What, what does that mean? you know how do you know what the right question is everybody has 
everybody has their answers within them. You know, we all, I think fundamentally, if we all took time and um, are asked the right questions, we've all got the answers within us. The right questions are the questions such as, what makes you feel like you should do this? Or um, what is the alternative? Or what else could you do? Or um, what could life look like if it was not X, Y, or Z? So there's just a lot of questions um, that I think people don't ask themselves. You know, we're, we're on this this kind of treadmill of life um, and it's just taking the time to pause and asking yourself the questions um, and that of course is what a coach does um, if, if you know people don't or can't do it themselves and so these people who are you know a lot of people are kind of stuck on a treadmill or you know stuck doing something that is fine right pays them a wage where they're in a life that they're like look there's nothing wrong with my life and um, it's fine but you know i feel like there's a, a something bigger out there something that i would really love like a dream life um out there that they might want to pursue you work with people and you kind of your own experiences over your life of kind of um seeing people in those situations maybe some people have come through it some people haven't what do you think are the biggest reasons that kind of stop people from getting off that treadmill? I think the two main are fear and guilt. So fear of failure, fear of maybe life being, what you know, if, if you're living an okay life, if I think about our life in Sydney, it was bloody amazing. Like that was totally living the dream. You know, I was not showering outside. I had hot water on demand like that. That was totally the dream. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) I was having cocktails every night after work. Like, um, but I think there is a fear that, oh my goodness, you know, will life be, could life, if I make this move, will life be worse? You know, can't fear of not being able to afford it, as we've spoken about. Um, fear of failure, fear of change. You know, I think we're we're conditioned to change is hard um, rather than embracing change. Um, I, I I think I read a not read a book. I listened to a podcast actually about um, the status game and everybody playing a status game. And you know, it's not the same status game. But I think um, Will Store, I think, has written this book around everybody, every human is playing some kind of a status game, you know, whether it's a status game of financial, whether it's a status game of um, getting a promotion or title, whether it's a status game of freedom, you know, am I playing a status game? Yeah, you know, my status game is freedom, I, you know, and wellness. Um, but I think... If we're aware of what our status game is that we're playing um, and then being able to reframe that, that can somewhat, I think, alleviate some of the fear. Um, But I think fear is a big one. I think the other one is guilt. And um, I 
certainly, you know, through my time in Australia, felt guilty constantly of being away from family, of missing milestones, birthdays, you know, funerals. I mean, things things happen and and you feel this constant sense of guilt, you know, the constant sense of when are you coming back or is Australia going to be forever or, you know, and, and just that even if the 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 people asking the questions, their intent is not to make you feel guilty inside. You know, I certainly did and I know others that do. So I think that guilt, um, guilt around, you know, kids, well, I can't leave my kids or parents or partners or, um, you know, colleagues. If I think about people taking sabbaticals, there's a big piece around, my goodness, I can't leave this workload for my colleagues. I'm on this huge project. Or So I think fear and guilt are the two big ones. Guilt is an awful feeling. I think, that, I think, I think guilt is like there's something very deep um, about how guilt can kind of hurt you or like cut you because it, ta- it as you were saying it like it plays on all of these um relationship strings which is like you know it's not just about yourself it's like no but it's like what would your mom think what would your dad think you know what i mean what would your colleague think like, you can't let them down you know i think i think that's a very very strong one and i don't know i don't know what it's like in other cultures but i think particularly in irish and perhaps british cultures there's something very strong um about guilt and also about shame and how that impacts like you know our decisions and do you think the same yeah i think it also comes down to the individual um and the work that somebody can do around that. Um, I know that a lot of people that I work with, I'm just trying to think about culturally. Um, whether there's a whether there's a trend around, you know, culturally. I think I think it's probably hardwired into most humans. If I think about people that I work with, um, there's no differentiator really around culture or, or nationality. It, it, it is, I think, what changes is the guilt you feel or one feels to a certain individual or circumstance. Um, but actually, in most, I think it's hardwired into humans. And I wonder why that is. I wonder where that, that comes from. Yeah, it's a good question. I wonder, is it, um, you know, tied back to, from an evolutionary perspective, our need to be like part of a group, right? And I think this also plays into the, into the fear aspect as well, right? Um, Whereas, you know, thousands of years ago, if you were part of the tribe, you're all good. You could survive, the tribe protected you, tribe fed you, you helped them, they helped you, and you could survive. If you got kicked out of the tribe and you weren't allowed in the little village and inside that protection, like you would literally die, right? So like <laughs> from an evolutionary perspective, we um we evolved to to want to be part of the tribe. And there's probably, you know, that guilt is a, is perhaps a signal for us at times saying like, hey, maybe, you know, if, you, if you're going to keep doing this thing, they might kick you out of the tribe. And if you're out there, then 
you know, it's dangerous out there. You might want to be out there. Of course, like you know, that, that, that doesn't, it doesn't really matter much anymore. Right. And um, like, we're still going to live. I, I, I actually find it interesting. So many of these conversations, whether it's about guilt or fear or any of the other things that we do, it's we're dealing with these kind of evolutionary tendencies that we've developed, which were maybe helpful like 5,000 years ago. But you know what? We don't need to worry anymore about being eaten by a line. Like we're, we're pretty good, <laughs> but we still have them like ingrained in ourselves. I think when you talk about status games, it's the same thing, right? We want to play status games because um, from an evolutionary perspective, the high status people were the ones who, you know, got to get the most mates and they were the ones who had the most children. And so that gene just continued on growing. But, you know, nowadays it's like that can draw us into doing a whole load of things that actually won't make us happy. Uh, it might lead us to having more kids, but that doesn't necessarily lead to more happiness either. So I find it interesting um, from that perspective. And on that part with fear, right? So I think this gets talked about a lot, which is like, you know, don't be afraid of failure. Like you should, like failure is actually a good thing and you should go out there and um, just do the thing. And like rationally, that all makes sense. But there's a big gap between understanding rationally that you should do something and actually being able to go and do it, right? And being able to say, yeah, I'm afraid, but I'm still going to do it. Have you ever found anything to kind of help people to get through that barrier, to kind of convert that rational understanding into action? So I think what's worked for me and certainly what's worked for others is to take yourself to worst case scenario. And we talked around, you know, life. my life's all right. My life's not bad. I just think there might be you know, something more or something bigger out there. So actually, worst case scenario is life right now. So is that such a bad thing? You know, if worst case scenario is being in the same place, then, you know, I think that's a, a concept that's certainly helped me, but helped others as well. Yeah, I was reading um, this this blog post. And actually, I'd recommend people to go and read because I really, I really enjoyed it. Um, I'll put it in the show notes afterwards. And one of the things that you wrote, I think this might have been kind of after you came back from one of your sabbaticals, you're trying to kind of, you know, implement maybe some of the things and start to create this life that it is that you wanted to live. And you wrote that you're determined to lace rituals into your life and um, that served you moving forward and kept you focused and accountable. Um, what what were some of those rituals what did the kind of practicality of some of that change look like yeah and I think this was fundamentally the game changer around that sabbatical being so successful is I mentioned my husband and I sat with a couple of beers overlooking Sydney Harbour and after the sabbatical I was like right okay this is the plan you know this is how we're going to get there um I then was absolutely motivated and almost fixated on having rituals to ensure that we didn't lose track. And um, one of those was vision boarding. So we came back in February, I think. And so I vision boarded for not I vision boarded for our life so the dream life but then I also break that down every year so I vision boarded at the beginning of the year I had yearly and quarterly 
it sounds very clinical, but yearly and quarterly goals and plans. Um, I laced yoga, meditation and breath work throughout. So I really started on my journey around wellness. And that gave me then, you know, the space and the time to just be able to um, have me time and know that I was on the right journey. Uh, one of my coaches advised me to, or, or not advised me, but she laces joy days into her life. And so I adopted that concept and I absolutely love joy days. So I have a joy day every month and a joy day is no tech, no only things that absolutely make your heart sing. So you'd be totally selfish. You know, if you don't want to be around anyone that day, don't be, you know, have it just as you. If you want to spend it with your favorite people, spend it with your favorite people. But, you know, one of my joy days um, last month, my husband was back in the UK. So I um, went mooching around like shops just you know trinket shops and because he hates doing that but I love doing that so you know like that kind of thing a massage a spa um and then a medicine walk as well that was another uh, practice that I laced into or, or ritual that I laced into my integration of my sabbatical was medicine walks so I did a medicine walk in nature probably every quarter maybe every every six months and that really is an intentional walk in nature where you have um an entrance into the walk and you cross a threshold and you might have a question to ask and you very much intentionally say it out loud and then just wander and go for a wander so if you think about um you know aborigines going on walkabout or you know we've we've wandered for years but I think we've lost that connection to nature um and that really was around me knowing that I was still on the right path and and you know continuing on that path so yeah lots of different um practices that I laced through the next five years and actually I'm still doing I think I'm gonna I think I'm going to steal a couple of those, especially that. It's great. Day. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds wonderful. I've started to, um, I've, I've become very interested in these kind of concepts of rituals or building little kind of traditions for yourself. And over the last couple of months, I've just started to implement them. And they're fantastic. They're amazing. And I think maybe I chanced upon, I wouldn't call it the joy day, but perhaps like a joy afternoon, which is like Friday afternoons, try and like finish work early, go to the same cafe. And then after that, I'm just like, you know, whatever you want to do, it's you, right? And I force myself, and I, and I know, like on Thursday evenings, I'm like, right, I got to write down everything that I need to get done before Thursday afternoon because, or before Friday afternoon, because I got to get it done because then I can have like my my me time on the Friday afternoon um, and not let like work or other things just like leak into that time and like to protect it. Um, and, th- and it's great. Like I look forward to it every week and it's like a nice little way to, to start the weekend but it's hard right it is it is oh yeah it is hard it is hard and I think like to begin with certainly this is what I was going to say it's like harder at the start right so it's like because you're like it's not a tradition yet so like missing it you're like well I've only been doing this for three weeks like who cares if I miss 
if I miss it, right? But then other ones that I've had for a bit longer, um, the longer you've been doing them, the more protective you become mm. of them. And you're like, no, no, I can't miss that. Like I do that every, I do that every week, every Saturday morning. I do that. Like I can't miss it. <laughs> um, and it's it's really nice. Like and it's a bit of a force. It's habit then. It is habit, you know. And it's it's kind of like forced discipline, right? Of, like, of course you can miss it. Like it doesn't actually matter, but at the same time it does, right? And and it's really it's really nice to have these like little rituals to to look forward to and to force yourself to do them, especially when you don't, because you may not feel like it, right? Like if Thursday's rolling around and I'm like, I've got a lot of work to do before the end of this week, you know, I don't really feel like taking off a Friday, like late afternoon. It's just like, no, like force yourself to get it done. Force yourself to keep the ritual. Um, and you're always, I'm always happy that I've done it, right? I never um, look back and I'm like, oh, I wish I'd given it up this week. Of course not. Um, I'm, um, I'm interested to know if you were to kind of go back and and talk to yourself when you were, you know, twenty five, say, um, what wh- what would you say to to that Rebecca at twenty five? At twenty five, where was I at twenty five? I'm just trying to think. Um, I would say it's going to be all right. Like everything works out. Um, I would say if you've got a decision to make, fast forward five years, 10 years and look back on what's the decision you won't regret because I think that is something that I very much now do and holds me in really good stead. You know, what 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 would future you want you to do and what will you not regret? Um, if I was being very clinical, what would I advise the 30-year-old me that stepped off the plane in Australia to do? Get a good tax accountant and a good financial advisor. Uh, <laughs> I spent way too much money and time partying hard. <laughs> I don't know if a tax accountant can help uh, you with that. Yeah. I think you need something more <laughs> severe. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's what I would say. Yeah, yeah. And and what about kind of for for somebody else now who might be, you know, in their 20s, in their 30s, like hasn't, maybe they're doing a job that they, they think is fine, but like, they know they want, don't want to be doing it forever. Um, what would you say to, to those people? What advice would you have for them? I think my piece of advice would be something that I heard Brene Brown talk about actually only recently, which is around a reference pool. And my advice would be at every possible potential point, try and expand your reference pool. Because I think that's what gives you options we don't know what we don't know. And so if we don't know that, then we don't know what's possible. So my advice would be at every point, expand your reference pool. And that means um, not saying yes to everything, but if we think about opportunity, if we think about travel, meeting new people, um, doing different things, reading different books that you wouldn't necessarily normally read, listening to podcasts, um, being diverse in your approach. 
to me, I think that's expanding your reference pool would be my one piece of advice. Mm, I think that's a fantastic piece of advice. I, I really like that. The last thing that I want to talk to you about is a very selfish topic. Um, See, so you've uh, spent a, a good bit of time in France <laughs> at this point. I don't know if you've seen outside the walls of your barn, but you know, maybe... You're... Renovating a barn, yeah. <laughs> But I got to ask you, so I'm I'm spending a couple of months in France um, later this year. I'm over for the Rugby World Cup. As somebody who's spent a bit of time in France, is there anything that you'd, uh, yeah, is there anything you'd recommend, you'd recommend for me to do, like some experiences or, or things that you're like, oh, this is, this is a great way. If I, okay, okay, here's a better way to do it. If I had a joy day, right, of course, this is personal to me and you don't know necessarily what my preferences would be. But like, what are some things that I could potentially do for my joy day while I'm in France? Oh my goodness, that is a big question. Okay, well, what, what would be your favorite um, thing? apart from trinket shopping? Because I'm not going to do Because where that. are you? Where are you going? <laughs> um, so, are you going to Paris? I will be in Paris for a short time. Yeah. Okay, so if I think about a joy day in Paris, for me, it would be turning off technology, not even having a map. And just wandering around the streets of Paris, down the Seine, um, and just get lost. Like, get lost. You're never really lost, right? And I think that's what we forget, is we have this, especially when we're travelling, oh, we must do tick, 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 tick. And actually, I think it's the moments where we're lost that come up with the most wonderful moments, um, anything that sparks your eye or interest, go into that shop, you know, is it a random bookshop or an old record store or, you know, something that you wouldn't put on your list? I think that's, that's what I would say. So actually that's not just Paris, that's anywhere. Turn off technology, don't have a map and just get lost. Um, a, a practice that also I love doing when I'm traveling is, um, not having technology on all day and then having a wonderful day, but then sitting with half an hour or 45 minutes at the end of the day and questioning everything. So then turning technology back on because, of course, it's an amazing resource, right? But questioning everything. So um, what was that church that I stumbled across that didn't have any kind of um, language that I could work out or whatever? And going down a rabbit hole of that said church or um that tea that I drank like my goodness what was it or where was it from or and really just then exploring the day and you'll be amazed at what random stuff comes up and what you learn um the other thing when you're in Paris and this is very um uh just a personal preference of mine there's uh they call it or certainly that my Parisian friends call it their equivalent to McDonald's and I would totally recommend it as a as a restaurant and it was it's basically built on the fundamentals that there was a a guy years and years ago that was a butcher um, but he was a butcher for the real rich and so he had a lot of the old cuts of meat that he used to have to throw away so instead what he did was he set up these huge kind of workman house restaurants and used these like old sort of um you know off cuts of meat to feed 
um, hundreds of people at very low cost. And it's basically continued. And so these there's two restaurants in Paris and um, one of them is absolutely massive. Like I can't even imagine how many. I think they probably do two to 3,000 covers an evening. What? Like it's absolutely massive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's huge. Absolutely huge. And it's just an immense experience because the energy and the vibe and that but it's super cheap so you know like a starter's two euros or three euros a main course is it's mental um, but it's good food and it's certainly nothing like mcdonald's but yeah the prison's like it's our it's our equivalent of mcdonald's yeah i'm definitely adding that to my <laughs> so list go there um what's it called do you know the name of them oh goodness I can't remember. I'll have to send it to you. Yeah, send it to me. That's you can put it in your show notes. I will. I will. <laughs> yeah. That's going on my list. There's two. There's one up by um, Moulin Rouge, and then there's one sort of down towards Notre Dame. Yeah. But yeah, they're amazing. Okay. That's a great tip. Um, I don't think is I've there anything that else? One. That's it. And then I think also just the lead up is always fun to holiday. Yeah. Just the anticipation. So really exploring. You know everything French. Yeah, yeah. I'm um, I'm making a conscious decision to look forward to this holiday because I was talking about this about my friends recently, which is like I remember when I was a little kid and we would go on our summer holiday. I wouldn't be able to sleep like for like three nights before we would go on holiday. I'd be like so excited. I'm like, there's going to be a pool. I'm going to be able to jump in the pool and like you know play football like wow like what what an amazing time i'd be so excited and then you grow up and you know you still look forward to them and then you become an adult and you kind of start going on loads of holidays and like it's kind of sad but you kind of can get used to them and you can get a little bit you know i've been on holidays before, and this is going to sound awful but like where you're kind of like oh yeah i'm off tomorrow for sure you know like you're not even looking forward to it. I'm like, what the hell? This is stupid. Like, so I've made a very, very conscious decision to be like, because I think it is actually just creating the headspace for yourself to be like, no, this is going to be great. I'm going to look forward to it. I'm going to put a little bit of effort into planning some things so that I can make the most of it, most of it, but also having that freedom to just wander. And um, I think that kind of being conscious about it to come back to where we started the whole conversation setting an intention um for a trip can really make you enjoy it a lot more than just kind of falling into it rushing through it and then at the end of it like oh yeah i guess i i was there i ticked all the boxes of things i wanted to do but did i enjoy them i don't know maybe Mm. it's a bit different was i present yeah, exactly. Exactly. I love your idea of just like wandering around and then kind of ex- sitting down to explore, you know, in the evening and kind of like be conscious about like, where was that? And actually, you know, read the whole Wikipedia page and figure out what the hell was going on in that place where you were. I think what did you stumble idea. upon? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but um, Rebecca, thank you so much for this uh, conversation. I really, I really enjoyed it. Um, if people want to find you like online, where's the best place for them to go? Best place is probably LinkedIn. So Rebecca Thomas. Um, and then I've also got Instagram pages. So Bexley Brown and, um, feel good getaways. Awesome. I'll chuck the links, uh, all into the comments so people can just click on them. Thank and you. And thank you very um, much. It's been brilliant 
brilliant conversation. Really enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. So I really hope that you enjoyed that chat that I just had with Rebecca. I want to leave you with a quote that I read for the first time many years ago, but I was flicking back through my notes this week and I came across it and I remembered just how much I love it. It's from a woman called Martha Graham. There's a vitality, a life force, an energy, a quickening that is translated through you into action. And because there's only one of you in all of time, this expression is unique. And if you block it, it will never exist through any other medium and it will be lost. The world will not have it. It is not your business to determine how good it is, nor how valuable, nor how it compares with other expressions. It is your business to keep it yours clearly and directly, to keep the channel open. I love that quote. There's a lot in it, but I think it's amazing. That's all for this week. I'll see you next week for episode 28 of the, the Two Rose Podcast. Intro. Making it happen. Shit. Shout out to my man to ADM. Shout out to all the motherfuckers that don't give a fuck about us. Now we here, all right? Yeah,